What did I say to you when you said, how did you do work as a first year fellow? <laughs> you said you didn't. <laughs> in addition to figuring out how to be a GYN oncologist, you know, and clinically um, trying to sort out how to balance the research part of it, it's, it's all a challenge. And um, I, I think it's something that's going to, it's probably a, a lifelong challenge to, that you're always working on, um, finding that time and that right balance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to all our evidence-based and med-ed enthusiasts. Welcome to the OBG Core Exchange, a podcast produced by the OBG Project. We all know that learning and teaching in medicine operates largely on an apprenticeship model where we see one, do one, teach one, leading to inevitably variable experiences, and the model can be difficult to navigate, especially within the realm of research. Join us as your hosts. Ashley Comfort and Nancy Cheshire bring in guest researchers to discuss their experiences and highlight multiple perspectives from medical students, residents, fellows, and other emerging investigators alongside their principal investigators to learn what has worked best. Um, okay, so I guess uh, you can start us off. We have today some amazing GYN oncologists, both uh, here from joining us from Duke. So can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Um, so my name is Ben. I'm the current second year fellow in uh, gynecologic oncology at Duke University Medical Center. Um, I grew up in uh, Louisville, Kentucky and did my undergraduate medical school up at Yale um, and took a one-year foray up to Dartmouth um, during medical school to do a master's in clinical and health services research. Um, and then I um, just recently finished my training in OBGYN at Hospital University of Pennsylvania in Philly. Great, thank you. Yeah, so I'm Haley Moss. I'm a gynecologic oncologist at Duke University. Um, I also recently became the director of the Women's Oncology System of Excellence and the National VA System. So sort of leading breast cancer and GYN cancer across the, the VA system. So that's really exciting. Um, I grew up in New York, went to college in Connecticut at Wesley University, um, went to medical school at um, the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. I guess it's now called the Perelman School of Medicine. Um, while I was a medical student, I took a you know, a little bit more than a year off to get my business degree at the Wharton School where I studied healthcare management. Um, we could talk about this a little bit later, but during that time, I also worked for CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to work for the Obama administration, and that's kind of what, um, you know, sparked my interest in health policy. Um, and then I did my residency at NYU Bellevue Hospital with Dr. Comfort, um, and then I did my fellowship here at Duke and then stayed on as faculty. Great. Thank you. I know, and this is... Uh very exciting for me because it's always fun to get to see some of your, you know, former co-residents and Haley was my chief and I was a baby intern and um, I say things occasionally as an attending and I just see Haley saying those exact same things to me when I was an intern. So um, this is really fun for me. Um, Haley, could you tell us a little bit more about um, because my next question for you is, were you always interested kind of in academics and the intersection of um, this, these large data in terms of um, like insurance and CMS policy? 
um, because today we are going to be highlighting the association of Medicaid expansion with mortality from GYN cancers, as well as the impact of Medicaid expansion on women with gynecologic cancer, a difference um, in difference analysis. And so um, can you tell us a little bit about that? It sounds like you've always been interested in that. Yeah. So um, when I was applying for medical school, so kind of like my interest in this goes way back, um, I decided to go to Penn because I was very interested in getting an MBA. And at the time, I was interested in either becoming a primary care physician or a pediatric HIV specialist. And, <laughs> and here we are. Here we are. <laughs> you know, so the reason why that was the case is that, you know, even in college and high school, I've always been committed to like social justice, community service work, outreach, um, working with underserved patient populations. And in my, I mean, I could say the word like naive um, sort of idea of medicine. Like when I applied, when I wrote that essay to get into medical school, it was about primary care and community health. And so I decided to apply to Penn with the interest of getting an MBA because I actually wasn't really that interested in research. I was really interested in administration. And, you know, I worked at a lot of HIV clinics when I was in college and I saw that, you know, an important element of providing you know, outstanding high quality clinical care was to have admin who knew what they were doing. And it wasn't actually just about the medicine. You could have really good doctors, but without sort of creating the tools and, you know, the resources and the ways of making it better for patients to access care, patients aren't going to get that care that they need, even if they have the best doctors in the world. So that was my sort of, you know, you know, my dream of going when I was applying to medical school was like, I was going to be the director of an HIV clinic or a federally qualified health clinic in the Bronx, because I'm, I'm from New York. So that was my dream. And then I went to medical school and I fell in love with the operating room and, you know, couldn't imagine um, not having a surgical um, career. And so then I was like, oh, maybe I'll be a trauma surgeon. Because like, <laughs> that makes sense. You know, you're in Philadelphia, you know, a lot of it is about gun violence. And there was this intersection of politics and medicine there. And I could, I could see myself as a trauma surgeon and the trauma faculty at Penn, you know, Ben also trained at, at Penn and they were, they were just phenomenal. And I did my OBGYN rotation and I was like, ugh, I never want to deliver a baby ever again. But, you know, <laughs> oncology is really cool. They do like huge surgeries. They do laparoscopy. They do these huge X laps. And I also realized that I don't really like outpatient medicine. I fell in love with like, you know, critically ill inpatient care. And I also really loved end of life care. And so I did my OBGYN rotation. I was like, you know, Gynoc is really cool, but like, I'm going to be the future director of an FQHC in the Bronx. Like, this makes absolutely no sense. Like, <laughs> like it makes, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, work together. And so then. And I, I think we have living proof um, in contrast to Nancy and myself, but living proof that you can do an OBGYN residency and then never deliver a baby ever again. So <laughs> you know, for those of you. <laughs> but so then, so then I ended up taking time off and I was still really struggling with like, you know, I was preparing to apply to internal medicine, general surgery and OBGYN and then took time off to go get my, my business degree at Wharton, where that was a really cool opportunity and sort of, you know, learning more about health policy. And that's sort of what I focused on. And it was also a really cool time because I started Wharton in 2010 and mm. the Affordable Care Act passed in March of 2010. Um, that's when Obama, you know, writ, wrote that into law, and we could we could talk about that. And so I was like, 
thinking about doing my McKinsey inter summer internship because that's what everyone does from Wharton. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to sleep on my friend's couch and work for the Obama administration. So <laughs> I worked at CMS, their innovation center, sort of like the very early stages of sort of um, alternative payment models and figuring out new ways of paying for care. And it was just, you know, such an exciting time to be working, uh, doing health policy, um, you know, because, you know, the Affordable Care Act is like the biggest healthcare legislation since like 1965 when Medicare and Medicaid was created. So it was just like some, I just fell in love with policy work. And it, it was actually a real struggle for me to think like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, be a resident after this. Like, this is so exciting. Like I'm impacting so many people's lives by doing policy. But I ultimately love caring for patients. I mean, then you know, I just love, I love being around patients. Like, there's nothing I love more. Um, and so I decided to do an OBGYN residency at NYU Bellevue. And I mean, I picked Bellevue because of sort of my commitment for working with underserved patients. Um, it's a large inner city hospital in New York City. And, um, and I was like, I'm gonna be a GYN oncologist and I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna figure out how I could do what I love from like a policy perspective and be a GYN oncologist. And you know, it was a real struggle. I mean, I'm gonna be really honest. Like I really didn't know how I was gonna do it. And sometimes I still struggle. Um, but I had really great mentors who were also really committed to, you know, like the Bellevue patient population. And, you know, there were times when I was like, maybe I should have just been a, not, I don't want to say just a primary, but maybe I should have been a primary care physician because it would, so it would be so clear sort of my role in policy and, you know, community health mm. as someone who's not a subspecialist. But then I ended up, you know, applying for a GUN oncology fellowship. And, you know, at the time when I was applying, there were very few oncology fellowships that allowed you to do non-basic science research. Now mm. it's becoming more common. But when I applied in 2015, Duke and maybe University of Washington and Penn, there was just a few handful of programs that allowed you not to do bench work. And so I had the opportunity to come to Duke to work with Laura Haverleski, who, you know, is just, you know, a really important person in our field, like really pushing health services research for GYN oncologists. She's like one of the first people to do cost effectiveness analyses. And I came in being like, I want to study the Affordable Care Act, which was not something fellows were probably saying when they were interviewing <laughs> for fellowship. And, you know, she was like, okay, but was like 110% supportive and was just kind of like, that's cool. No one's doing this. Let's see how to make this work. And so mm. then I came to Duke for fellowship and, you know, here I am now still doing that type of work. Yeah, that's awesome. And it seems like, you know, having a good idea of what you, who can help you get where, you know, what sort of people can help kind of push you along this path. I started similarly medical school with the idea I would never do OBGYN, um, applied in both surgery and OBGYN when I was applying um, and was going to be a GYN oncologist when I started OBGYN. So, you know, all of our paths take really interesting uh, directions. Um, but one question I have is, it's it's one thing to go from policy and business background and a commitment to the end of serve to the type of very complicated analysis that you did in this paper um, that we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, the, the um, uh, sort of difference and difference approach and the pretty complex models you had to set up. W where did you develop that skill set, or was that a, um, a part of a collaboration with you and a 
by a statistician or or a public health person. Or yeah, maybe, so, or maybe Ben brings this this skill. Yeah, so I am. I have a business background, and I am a really Ben. I'm really good at like idea generator, but I don't have a background in statistician and you know research methods. I mean, I, I do know how to do cost effectiveness analysis because that was something that I studied as a fellow. Um, prior to the, these projects, you know, when I first started fellowship, um, I wanted to study Medicaid expansion. And now there's like so many articles on Medicaid expansion, but no one was doing this work when I first started fellowship. And I don't want to say that like I'm a genius. It was just because the data wasn't available yet. So like Medicaid expansion started in 2014 and I became a fellow in 2016. So there was me and probably researchers all over the country, including Yale, the American Cancer Society, who all had this great idea of sort of studying Medicaid expansion simultaneously. And when I decided to like, you know, take this on, there was no papers in the literature about it. And so I connected with um, a, a radiation oncologist here, Jen Zocchino, who does have um, a background in research methods. And he like wasn't really knowledgeable about the Affordable Care Act. And I came up to him and was like, we need to sort of study sort of non-Medicaid expansion states and Medicaid expansion states. How do we do it? And, you know, he was the one who told me about a difference in differences analysis. And so, you know, I do, I mean, this is, it's a collaboration, like all research, like basic science research. Like, I think sometimes people think like the research that we do in health services research is really just like, you know, easy statistics, but you know, it, it does take like, you know, not like easy stats. That is not my takeaway from that. <laughs> it doesn't have to be as collaborative as basic science research, which, you know, um, is true sometimes, but you know, it, the only reason I've been able to publish about the Affordable Care Act is because, you know, I've partnered with people who, you know, have that statistics background, which Ben can talk to you about, you know, it wasn't just medical school that he's able to do these analyses. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the really important issues to drive home for the discussion of our uh, on our podcast is you you just so clearly define this is what I want to study. Now let me go find someone who can help me do that. Yeah. Um, and get them engaged in the passion of the project and the piece of it that you didn't have that that you could encourage their their um, uh, involvement and it's just so so critical um, that if if you're a researcher with an idea there are people around you or available to you um, to to engage with you. Yeah, and I think that that's a great segue for Ben. Can you tell us a little bit? Was that you know? Did you similarly find that you had an interest in looking at the Affordable Care Act or how did you kind of get connected with Haley? Yeah, it's interesting. Haley and I have sort of parallel um, routes toward to get to where we are right now. Um, I went to, um, I did my undergrad at Yale and um, initially had no interest in medicine whatsoever, was going to be an econ major. Um, and then kind of got um, turned on to clinical medicine by an EMT certification course that I took while I was an undergrad. And so I sort of switched my econ major to being a health economics uh, major. And um, so that was sort of my introduction into, into health policy. And, and I, I, mean, I graduated college in 2011. So this was all um, right around the time that the, um, that the ACA was being passed and, um, and being implemented. And um, so I started medical school and then um, I, I actually thought long and hard about doing an MBA also, um, just sort of having these interests in health policy and administration and how healthcare functions and 
um, sort of um, as I was looking at options for me to pursue, I, I ended up um, finding this program up at Dartmouth um, at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice um, that was a, um, had a lot of health policy components to it, um, but was a little bit more of a technical degree and was going to give me a little bit more of that um, hard statistics, um, bio, um, biostats um, background. Um, and so I just had a really fantastic experience up there, and that was a really, really beneficial year for, for everything that's kind of happened for me um, subsequently, um, because I really got this great foundation and ability to, um, to use Stata to do, um, to do my own statistics. Um, I didn't, um, didn't do any difference in difference work, per se, while I was there, but um, did have some introduction to these sort of quasi-experimental advanced statistical techniques. Um, and some comfort in starting to do that in Stata. Um, and so, um, so when I sort of, my clinical interest initially started with, um, with surgery, and then um, I had no interest in OBGYN also when I started uh, my clinical year. And I then uh, did my OBGYN clerkship and just kind of fell in love with, uh, with um, the OR primarily, but also enjoyed the obstetrics part of it, and, um, but really fell in love with the gynonc um, portion and kind of went to residency um, expecting to do that. And then um, it just kind of, um, I found, felt pretty um, quickly in residency that, um, that that was what was for me clinically. Um, and so then it was just kind of for me was about how do I merge these um, my clinical interests with sort of my policy and research interests and and I, I think it just it works it worked out kind of nicely in that um, that OBGYN as a field is um, something that has a lot of pub public health issues and um, and um, cancer screening is something that touches a lot of people and so there's just a um, it, it kind of just fell into place for me. And, um, and so like, like Haley, when I was looking for Gynog fellowships, I was looking for a place that was going to allow me to pursue those interests. And, um, and I had actually, uh, um, first, um, I don't know, I don't think we technically met, but, um, had first, um, heard of Haley when I was at SGO in 2018 and saw her give her plenary on, um, her fellowship work, which was doing, um, was her initial, uh, difference in different study using the SEER data. Um, to study um, gynonc patients and ultimately um, a little more general oncology patients with, in relation to Medicaid expansion. Um, and I was just, I, I saw that presentation. I was like, oh, that's, that's exactly the kind of things that I want to be doing. Um, and so I sort of, I was a second year, I think, resident at the time and sort of kept that in the back of my mind. And later when I applied for fellowship and interviewed and met Haley, who was just finishing fellowship and about to start here as an attending, um, I just knew that this was a, a perfect situation for, um, for us to put our heads together and, and really um, work together on our common interests. So, um, and uh, here I am and it's been fantastic. But that was like so cool. Like when I got accepted for that plenary at SGO in 2018, I was like in disbelief. I like submitted this thing about Medicaid expansion. No one was talking about Medicaid expansion. And SGO like took a big risk and said, we're gonna make this like a plenary session. We're gonna talk about the Affordable Care Act and talk about disparities and like why insurance is important. I mean, I was like in shock when I got that email. And I think that that was huge. And then it was just kind of like a domino effect from there that like people became really interested in this topic. Then can you, I guess that'll bring us to a little bit about the key points of the paper. Um, I, sent, I guess Ben, since you're first author, do you wanna give us some highlights? I know that we've been talking a lot about it, but just for those who 
may not have read it yet or seen it yet. Can you give us a... Sorry, before, I don't, I want to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. Before we talk about the paper, I just think it's important just to talk for like, you know, the listeners who don't really know like the history of the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion. Oh, yeah. Like why this is something that is, is worthy of studying. So in the original Affordable Care Act, which was, you know, you know, signed into law in 2010, uh, part of it, I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge bill, but part of it was that Medicaid expansion was going to be for everyone in the entire United States, okay? And what that means is that patient uh, people would be eligible for Medicaid if, you know, they were less than 133, yeah, somebody said 138%, 133% of the federal poverty line. And at, until then, you know, until 2010, it was different in each state. Like eligibility for Medicaid was different. And so some people could be eligible for Medicaid in California, but not be eligible in, you know, North Carolina and things like that. And so they essentially said, like, across the United States, all the so many more patients are going to have access to Medicaid. And, you know, a lot of people did not like the Affordable Care Act. And so then it found its way in the Supreme Court, you know, one of many times, unfortunately. But there was a, you know, a big Supreme Court case in 2012, I believe. And, you know, the, the, the two arguments was that Medicaid expansion was unconstitutional. And the other thing that um, they were trying to get rid of was the individual mandate, which, which, which we won't talk about. But essentially what, you know, the court decided, you know, and it, it wasn't like a total split between, you know, conservative and liberal judges. I think it was like seven Supreme Court justices said that Medicaid, Medicaid expansion was unconstitutional, saying essentially that, you know, the federal government, you know, cannot coerce, they use the word coerce, states to provide this to pay to um to their uh citizens in that state that kind of is what it says and so essentially states can opt in for medicaid expansion but they don't have to like the way the way the law was originally intended that every everybody would be eligible for medicaid expansion and so it created like two sets of states like states that opted in for medicaid expansion and so mm -hmm. many more people were eligible for medicaid in those states and then you had these other states where they didn't opt in for Medicaid expansion. So like that's an important sort of, you know, background. So it created this kind of like trial opportunity essentially, right? Starting in 2014 when Medicaid expansion was starting is that there, there are these two different types of states across the US. So I just think that that's important background before, you know, it, it like set it up for researchers to go crazy comparing sort of outcomes in these states. Go ahead. Now Ben can go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so and Haley started off this work, I mean, like we talked about with her um, with her initial work using the SEER data, and sort of after I matched here um, for fellowship, I start, opened the line of communication with with Haley and Dr. Haverleski and sort of started to think about research projects, and um, and I had noticed, and um, I was interested in working with the National Cancer Database, and um, had noticed that there was a, a new field, I think, that came up in 2015. Um, where they, um, although the National Cancer pa Database doesn't um, identify a patient state, they um, put in a new field where they would say if their state was a Medicaid expansion state or not. Um, and so when I saw that, that, that sort of immediately triggered, oh, this is like a perfect opportunity to kind of do a, a, a similar kind of difference and difference um, structured study. Um, and sort of the special thing about difference and difference methods is that you um, when you have a treatment group or your Medicaid expansion states and a control group or your non-expansion states, and then you have data that spans the launch of that treatment. So the treatment primarily launched in January of 2014 um, for most of the expansion states. So if you have data from before that and after that, 
then you sort of have this um, this really interesting kind of internal control um, that makes it to where your analysis is really pretty robust to the treatment and control groups even having differences at baseline and, and uh, not necessarily being the same, which is important because um, the states that chose to expand Medicaid and the states that did not cho choose to expand Medicaid um, certainly um, had some differences. Um, the, um, uh, overall, you're, um, the more um, um, left-leaning progressive um, dominated states tended to adopt Medicaid expansion. Um, whereas, with, um, whereas more of the um, conservative states tended to not adopt it, um, with some um, some exceptions here and there. Um, and so, when I when I saw that, I, I uh, approached my mentors, um, who were my research mentors at Penn, uh, mainly Dr. Ashley Haggerty, um, and then approached Haley and said, "Hey, this this data looks cool to to be able to do this kind of work." Um, and they um, they were both super supportive. We applied for the the data and got access to it. And um, and from there, it was um, the next step for me. As we sort of re uh, referenced earlier, is that for in research, I think collaboration is just really important to kind of filling the gap in where you don't have the expertise. And so, actually, the first person that I went to after that was um, to talk to one of my co-residents at the time, uh, Dr. Dimitrios Nasiotis. Um, who is uh, currently uh, one of the Gynonc Fellows at Penn um, and has um, published extensively out of the National Cancer Database. And so I thought bringing in his expertise in, um, in sort of this large, complex database that I had never personally worked with was going to be important for, um, for doing the study and coding it correctly. Um, and then um, we also brought in uh, uh, actually just a friend of mine who I had known from my undergraduate days when he was a research assistant at Yale. Um, who was currently a, um, a PhD student at University of Pennsylvania um, doing a, a health economics PhD. Um, his name's Stuart Craig, and um, he um, is an expert in difference and difference methods, but also specifically in coding for that in Stata. Um, so while I felt comfortable doing a lot of statistical things in Stata, um, difference and difference specifically was something I had never done myself, so I felt like it was important to sort of add in um, that collaboration. And so then we started looking at this data, and really the the NCDB um, allows you to um, to really study um, uh, several different outcomes in relation to Medicaid expansion. Um, so we um, um, we looked at um, time let's to see, treatment. yeah, time to treatment, um, the risk of being uninsured at the time of diagnosis, um, the use of academic medical center for treatment. Um, it's, and, uh, and some other um, sort, of, sort of process outcomes. Um, we didn't look at mortality in, um, in that study or overall survival for a couple of reasons. Um, one being that we were um, lumping together a lot of heter uh, heterogeneous diseases and, and looking at uterine and ovarian and cervical and vulvar vaginal patients kind of all at the same time. Um, but also that when we were first doing this, um, our data only, went, only had um, mortality data through 2015. And so obviously you're gonna have a pretty limited ability um, in, with something that started in 2014 um, to see an impact at that point. Um, so we sort of focused on these process outcomes and really did find um, that there were improvements um, in the Medicaid expansion states. Um, so we found um, significantly lower risk of uninsurance at diagnosis, um, some, um, some evidence of shorter time to treatment and higher use of, um, of academic medical centers um, among our outcomes. Um, and so, um, so that was sort of what we did with the first paper, which then, um, as I'm sure we'll get into, kind of um, led um, us to the second paper.
But I think that that's an important piece. Like, so when you're studying policy, there's mm-hmm. like a d- delay when you're using like large data. So Ben was doing that study in 2017, 2018. Oh, no, no, that no. Was, so we were probably doing that in 2019. 2019. The NCDB data um, only had... was only published through 2016. And the mortality component was even further lagged back to 2015. Um, so you kind of, in anything where you're studying these policy changes, you have to allow some time to pass to then be able to have your data to look at outcomes. Especially if you're looking at outcome measures such as like cancer mortality, mm-hmm. where you need several more years after the initial policy change. And, you know, and so sometimes, you know, that's sometimes like a frustrating part of when you're looking at um, policy interventions. And also knowing that like some institutions do have access to that data earlier. And so you could, you know, I don't want to use the word scoop because I think it's always important for this data to sort of come out. It doesn't matter who authors it, but you know, you should be aware that that sometimes you'll feel that like the frustration, like I know it happened to me as a fellow studying this is that the American Cancer Society has access to the NCDB years that the public or like, you know, places like Duke don't have. And so I remember being at ASCO, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology Conference, and looking at a poster and realizing like they had all of these years and all of this state data that I didn't have access to, but because they were, you know, the American Cancer Society can access those that, that data a lot earlier. I, I, one of the things that I was thinking about um, with this study design and, and the sort of uh, natural um, uh, sort of quasi-randomization that happened is it I, and I wondered if you were going to be looking at this is looking at long-term outcomes uh, clinical outcomes for the patients is now disrupted because of the pandemic um, and how that overlaid with the natural um, uh, experiment of the Medicaid expansion issues and if you overlay all these maps the pandemic certainly during delta has been much worse in the same states that didn't expand medicaid and we can we're not going to get into the politics of that but um i i think it's going to be very disruptive to your research for outcomes uh, because of just the changes in healthcare and access to care that's happening yeah i mean Luckily, knock on wood, you know, the data doesn't really exist yet for COVID time. So Ben and I have been able to like continue doing the research that we've been doing. I mean, we've, we've been looking at other things like insurance churn and, you know, ca- catastrophic spending and things like that. And most of our data yeah. now goes up until like 2019, 2018. But like, I'm sure like Ben and I are going to have a research meeting in like, you know, five years and be like, you know, what do we do with uh, 2020 on? Yeah. And, for that with our analysis to actually look at you know policy interventions it's you know it's going to be a real struggle yeah so, so there was a couple of things that i wanted to ask about with the paper and specifically figure three uh i don't know if you've got it with you but this is the um uh time plots of early diagnosis treatment at academic facilities and treatment within 30 days by state medicaid status expansion status uh and there was data in here that I, I found really interesting, um, if I'm reading your charts correctly. Um, <laughs> and it, it, panel B is treatment at academic facilities. And I always think of academic facilities as being the um, safety net 
uh, for people who have uh, low income or no insurance or limited insurance. But it looks like, if, if I'm reading this correctly, just from the get-go, 2008 is where your data starts, it's pretty flat for people with no insurance um, and quite low, which shocked me. Um, and it was frankly pretty flat, but higher uh, for people who um, have access to Medicaid insurance. And we're just talking about Medicaid, I understand. But I would have thought that there would be a much higher rate of people in this um, uh, demographic who were actually getting care at an academic facility. So that, that's one question. The other one is, and you, you mentioned it in your conclusions, but just very briefly as, gosh, why is this happening, is the treatment delays um, uh, after 30 days after diagnosis actually increased in all of your groups, at, at least visually and, and I think statistically as well. Could you comment on those two things? Yeah, so the uh, the panel B um, with the treatment at academic facility, um, so there are four lines on that graph and each represents a different group of patients um, in relation to their state uh, Medicaid expansion status, um, with the red line being the no expansions and so sort of the, um, the control group. So you can see that that's um, pretty flat. Um, and, and it is a, just notable that the, so the non patients coming from non-expansion states were just generally overall le much less likely to be treated at an academic facility than patients in expansion states. Um, and I don't have a, a great explanation for, I'd have to think more about um, the, the characteristics of the expansion versus non-expansion states. Um, but don't have a, a great explanation for that sort of baseline difference. But I think the important thing in terms of our outcome for our paper is that you can see that the, um, the non-expansion um, states have a, a flat rate um, of treatment in an academic facility, um, whereas in the expansion states, we do see um, sort of a bump up in the later years um, from 50% to closer to 55% um, of treatment um, being treated at an academic facility. And then in regards to the treatment um, within 30 days, you're totally right that this, this trend that we observed is, is kind of concerning and that there's this general downtrend in the proportion of patients that are um, being treated within um, 30 days. And, and um, I mean, that wasn't our primary outcome. And I'm sure that that um, field has been sort of assessed in, in other research, um, but it would be interesting to explore that further because I, I, don't, I don't have a good explanation for why that would generally be um, declining over time. I mean, NCDB is a, it's a large database, and so the, the specifics of coding can be a little bit complex, and so there's always the possibility that some of it could be um, related to the way the, the data is being input or derived from the individual centers. But um, when you see this trend and this trend that's consistent across the four different groups of states, um, it certainly is concerning and, and warrants um, further exploration um, with future research. I think that, um, thank you for that explanation. It's, it's um, you know, one of the things that really struck me that I really loved hearing from both of you, it sounds as though you both have, bring a lot of strengths, like different strengths. And the big thing that I think a lot of people struggle with is kind of the statistics and figuring out, you know, when you have an idea, how do you actually make that idea happen. Um, 
Do you have any thoughts on how you find someone who does have that sort of information? So, um, for example, Haley, you said you coordinated with um, a radiation oncologist. Like, how do you go about finding those people that might have those skill sets that you're looking for? I mean, I have no shame in saying this, but I like just cold call email people of papers that I've written <laughs> and say, hey, I saw that you published this paper in JAMA Oncology or GYN Oncology or the Green Journal. I love that study. Can I collaborate with you? I do that all of the time. I've created like friends all over the country by just emailing people and saying that I'm interested in their work. Can we collaborate? And, you know, if you, you know, you look at, papers that I published in the last two years, you know, yes, there are Duke people, but there are people like at Columbia, there are people at Sloan Kettering, there are people at MGH. Um, and, you know, and part of that is just, you know, just reaching out and just saying, hey, I like what you're doing, let's collaborate. I mean, Ben and I did that with um, a recent study also, of, you know, he's at Dartmouth, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And we just set up a meeting. Yeah, I, I, com I completely agree. I think that like sending, sending an email to a researcher who's done something that you're really interested in, like that researcher is going to be excited that you're interested in their work. And so, I mean, the worst case scenario is that they, they don't respond or they tell you that they don't have time, but it doesn't hurt to, to reach out to people. And, and um, Haley and I have had several projects where we've collaborated with people outside of Duke this year. And, um, and many of those projects kind of just started with just an email of, hey, we're thinking about this. I, I, it seems like you're also interested in this and maybe there's a way we can work together to, um, to make a study happen. And, um, and it's led to several different productive collaborations. So, um, so yeah, I think that um, when, when people feel like you're interested in what they're doing and have similar interests, then they're gonna be inclined to, to wanna work with you and, and put their heads together, so. Yeah, I mean, some data sets are really easy to access. Mm -hmm. I would say like Sears pretty easy to access. You sort of just like download a program and you know take like, like a video tutorial. NCDB is a little bit more difficult to access because you have to write like a research summary and things like that. But you're still able to get it, get it. Things like Sears Medicare, where it's sort of attached to claims data. Oh, geez, that could take like four years if you have an idea yeah. to get it from from CMS. Also, things like Market Scan, which is another you know claims data set that and I use a lot. Really expensive. You you know, and that's another thing. You know, when you're a junior faculty or a fellow or a resident, and you have a research idea. And you you know you read a study in the Green Journal and say I want to I want to use Market Scan. Woo! You you need a lot of funding to do <laughs> with with that data set. And so you know what Ben and I did was like, who is Market Scan? Let's contact them. Tell them like what we want to study. Mm. You know it's you know it's really worked out for us. And you know people do the same thing because like they, people know that I have access to Sierra Medicare because I applied for it three years ago and I have it. And so then. I, then I will provide, you know, that data set to other institutions. Yeah, that's great. And um, Ben, it sounds like you have a really good grasp of statistics. And um, that's an I, understatement. Yeah. yeah. And um, as someone whose only uh, statistics classes have come through medical school and a lot of YouTubing, um, do you have any sort of best resources for people that are, you know, not going to tackle a difference in difference analysis, but perhaps maybe are interested in working with maybe, I believe you have to code in Stata, right? So maybe doing, you know, what are, what are good, some, some good resources for people that are 
interested in getting dipping their toes in, but don't quite have as solid a foundation as you do. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, this is obviously the hardest to, to do, but is available to many people in medical training is, is if you have the opportunity to seek out a, a master's degree or coursework, that's really going to give you formal training. That's, it's really nice. Like my, my master's at, at uh, Dartmouth, all the different courses use Stata. So it really reinforced your, your learning mm-hmm. in that program and, and really helped me feel very comfortable using it and sort of now that I have the baseline comfort, I feel comfortable figuring out how to do new things in, in Stata that I hadn't done before. Um, and so I, I think that that's really um, important um, and, and useful, but not necessarily available to everybody. Um, you, you sort of, you were laughing when you said it, but YouTube really is a phenomenal resource these days for, um, for um, statistics learning and for specifically for coding for different softwares. Um, my, my wife is actually in medicine also and um, has, and was comfortable in R, but needed to learn Stata for, for some projects and she taught herself on YouTube. Um, and so the, I mean, that kind of thing certainly can be done. And then Sort of the, the third thing that I'd say is to just take advantage of your um, of your biomedical library. Um, the librarians mm. can be really helpful in literature searching. A lot of academic libraries have access to statistical consultants who can, even if they're not going to be able to do your project for you, they can at least point you in the right direction or answer questions. Or um, for me, when I'm getting into something that I'm not totally comfortable coding, if I have a quick question, sometimes I can um, run it by one of the st- stats consults at the library and they can sort of point me, um, help me uh, troubleshoot. So um, yeah, those are probably the, the main resources that, that I use and um, would recommend to people. Ben, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. You know, like I've taken a lot of research ethics courses and sometimes people say that like, you know, the PI or the primary researcher who comes out with the idea shouldn't do their own stats just because, you know, there could be some biases there in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. your hypothesis and you want to, you know, prove whatever you want to prove. And so some PhDs have told me like, you know, I even though I have a background to do my own statistics, I always hire a statistician for my analyses, you know, just to prevent, you know, that there's another person doing the analysis, even though I'm like the idea generator. Do you have an, an opinion on that? I'm just curious. I mean, I can I can see the argument for it, but I think that if as long as you're collaborating with people on the project where you're getting input from others and you're being um, open about and you have other people who also kind of understand, even if it's not the statistical coding, but like the the general statistical plan and um, and that kind of thing that um, that you can ultimately um, do a do a project without like what I would call a, a true bias, but I think that it, it, it requires that you have other people looking at, at what you're doing. And, um, and um, certainly, I, although I feel comfortable doing a lot of stuff myself, I'm also pretty quick to, to ask for another opinion um, if I'm not sure about something or if, uh, if it, whether it be a coding issue or just a, a statistical methods issue. Um, that's, I mean, that's why we, on that, um, the one paper we worked with Stuart Craig, who is a PhD and really has a true expertise and thinks about, um, the methods, um, on a, a different level from what I do and, and knows stats on a different level from what I do. And, and so I think when you, you get input from people who have, um, even more expertise that, um, and at least a second set of eyes on things that you can do a, a good study and feel comfortable and confident about, um, what you're producing. And I would add that the peer review process ought to 
have some additional checks on that. It doesn't always, but it, it certainly should. Yeah. Well, thank you both. I mean, I think that this has been really, really helpful. I think some of the big takeaways are that you both are very good at identifying what you're really good at and what interests you, but then also seeking out other people that kind of fill in the gaps and make sure that, that can get the projects or your interests across the finish line to complement both of your strengths. Um, and I think that the last kind of questions that I have for you are just how do you how do you manage all of your time? And I know we don't have too much time because I'm sure you both have busy clinical commitments, but um, you know, just in terms of parting thoughts on how to be able to actually cram all of this into both of your, I'm sure, very busy schedules. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I will say that, you know, I have been incredibly lucky as um, a junior faculty at Duke because, you know, my division director and my, my senior colleagues, um, you know, know that I love research and has given me the time to sort of, you know, explore my research interests. Part of that also was that when I, when I finished fellowship, I got a career development award, which protected 75% of my time. I got the birch, which is called building interdisciplinary research careers in women's health. Sometimes I mess up the acronym. So I got that when I first got left fellowship. And so that was great because then I had protected time to do research and have meetings with statisticians, take extra yeah. courses, you know, write papers and things like that. I think you know, my, my friends at other institutions who don't have, you know, junior investigator awards who are doing research, but then also working 80% of the time clinically, I can't imagine, you know, it's really, it, it's, it's really hard to, to do that. And, you know, it's really, I've been really privileged that I've been able to, you know, carve out time within the work day for me to sort of commit and dedicate to, to mm -hmm. research. So Haley, you work well with relatively small units of time then? I mean, if you've got an hour, can you? Oh, no, I can't. And that's why it's so great. <laughs> that I, you know, I don't, I don't have the career development award anymore um, because, you know, I took on a job at the VA and I had to drop my career development award. But for me, I can't, you know, you know, I have a colleague actually at Duke who is able to write a grant in between OR cases. Like I watch her round on <gasps> She'll go in the surgery lounge and she'll, she'll write one paragraph about a grant. And I always looked at her in like such awe because I can't do that actually. And so it was really important for me to have like that protected time and apply for that grant because I need like an entire Tuesday where I'm not thinking about patients. Maybe mm -hmm. I'll round in the morning, but like I, I need two hour chunks to get anything accomplished. Yeah. Really th yeah. This is a really important issue for anybody who's, trying, who's got lots of different hats that they're supposed to wear. I mean, we all have some work units that are small increments of time, but these kind of creative, deep thought, uh, collaborative sort of things that you're talking about really take chunks of time. Yeah. And so I will say, you know, you know, what I do for my schedule that I, it was the best, someone gave me this advice. So I have like an outlook and I write on my, my schedule that I'm writing. So like, let's, it'll, if you look at my calendar, it says on Tuesdays from one to three, I have a block that says I write manuscripts during that time. I might not even have a manuscript that I'm writing on, but it's, it's like a, a creative time that I put in my calendar where I don't have schedule meetings. I don't see patients like, cause I need that block time and I need to protect mm -hmm. it for myself because no one's going to protect it for me otherwise. And so that's what I do from one to three on Tuesdays. Great advice. Also, you should schedule time to exercise or meditate or 
Oh, <laughs> Lord knows I use the Peloton every day. Ashley knows that. <laughs> right over there <laughs> right there <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, this is all um i'm i'm sort of very much trying to figure out exactly that right now as i've now i'm about three months into my clinical fellowship after a year mm. where i was completely protected and um i mean it was a really awesome year to be able to to take a um several hours or a full day or even a full week to just devote to a single project or something you're thinking on or a coding issue or whatever it may be. Um, and um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm actively trying to sort that out as I try to get things finished up that I got started last year. And now well, what did I say to you when you said, how did you do work as a first year fellow? <laughs> you said you didn't. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, in addition to figuring out how to be a GYN oncologist, you know, and clinically um, trying to sort out how to balance the research part of it, it's, it's all a challenge. And um, I, I think it's something that's going it's probably a, a lifelong challenge to that you're always working on um, finding that time and that right balance. Well, congratulations to you both. This is really very phenomenal work and and I'm hoping is informing policy makers uh, around these these issues. Um, one, one can only hope. Uh, they're, seeing, they're seeing this and understanding the importance of providing access to care. Well, I'll say that when we first started this research, you know, very, you know, there were a lot more non-Medicaid uh, expansion states. And now in 2021, I think there's only 13 states still holding out. Maybe I think we're down to a dozen. Now, we're down so to a dozen. North Carolina is, is one of them. Is but... one of them. <laughs> Even though we're a purple state, we didn't want to struggle, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you both so much for joining us. I think that this has been really, really, really um, interesting and kind of helpful to hear just first more about your interests and your research and also just hear about how you are making it happen. And um, I guess I'm, I have some cold call emails to, <laughs> to write now. <laughs> Do you have any parting words, Nancy? No, I just uh, so appreciate your, your contributions here. And I think uh, other listeners will be really interested to hear your story and what, what's worked for you. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. For having us. And All we right. will see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. OBG First knows that you are as passionate about staying up to date with the latest guidelines and research as we are. Sign up for OBG First today so you can bookmark guidelines, articles, and updates for future review or reference. Save for later to view, send your colleagues, or print out for reference whenever you want, all on your phone. We've got a special offer just for our listeners for two months free off their OBG First subscription. Go to obgproject.com backslash getfirst and use promo code OBGSpotify at checkout. That's obgproject.com backslash get first promo code OBG Spotify.